Hello and welcome to the ninth episode in the Linklater's Competition Litigation podcast series. This week we're focusing on the English court's approach to pass on. I'm Serena Williams, a partner in the Linklater Dispute Resolution team, and I'm joined by my colleague Jason Chardlow-Rest. We are delighted to be joined today by Iona McCall, a specialist competition economist from Alex Partners, who will be providing a valuable insight into the economic approach to pass on. Welcome to the podcast, Iona. Thanks, Serena. It's great to be here. So before we ask Iona to get into the economics, Jason, for the benefit of those who may be less familiar with competition damages claims, what do we actually mean when we use the phrase pass on? It's an excellent place to start. For those who haven't had the great fortune to be involved in competition damages claims, it's probably worth a reminder that as tortious claims founded on breach of statutory duty, competition damages claims are governed by what's known as the compensatory principle which aims to place a person into the position they would have been in had no competition law infringement actually occurred. So as part of that, the claimant should not be under or overcompensated. The pass-on doctrine emanates from this. Claimants should not be able to recover loss if they have passed on that loss to another party. So pass-on is effectively where damage caused by unlawful conduct is transferred from one level of the supply chain to another. And it's in that context that our listeners may have heard pass-on referenced as both a sword and a shield. So let's just take a simple example where a direct purchaser has been overcharged for a product sold by the defendant as a result of the defendant's infringement, and the direct purchaser then sells on that product to a second indirect purchaser, including part or all of the original overcharge. If the direct purchaser brings a claim against the defendant to recover the overcharge, the defendant may well argue that all or part of the overcharge has been passed on to the indirect purchaser, such that the direct purchaser has not suffered loss. So that's passed on being used as a shield. It's a defense to the direct purchaser's claim. But in that example, the indirect purchaser has also suffered loss as a result of the overcharge, and so may seek to recover that loss from the defendant. That is passed on being used as a sword. It's the foundation of the indirect purchaser's claim. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that the development of the pass-on doctrine in England and Wales has actually been on a long and winding road. When considering cases relating to the vitamins, air cargo and copper tubes cartels, the English courts included obiter comments that indicated that a pass-on event was available in England and Wales as part of the compensatory principle. However, there was an absence of case law dealing with the issue directly, and the position wasn't actually formalised until the damages directive. It was worth the wait though, wasn't it, Jason, with the damages directive obliging member states to ensure both that the pass-on defence is available to defendants and enshrining the right of indirect purchasers to claim for passed-on overcharges. It has also created a rebuttable presumption that pass-on to an indirect purchaser has occurred where first, the defendant committed an infringement of competition law, secondly, the infringement resulted in an overcharge for the direct purchaser, and thirdly, the indirect purchaser purchased the goods or services affected by the overcharge. The European Commission subsequently sought to marry legal and economic concepts relating to pass-on through its guidelines for national courts in July 2019. Iona, do you want to give us a rundown of your thoughts on the guidelines? Oh, thanks, Serena. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'd like to point out first of all is that um, the guidelines focus on downstream pass-on as you've just described it. So that's passed on from the direct purchaser of the affected product or service to the indirect purchaser. They don't address the cost mitigation concept of pass on, which I know we're going to discuss shortly. So in terms of the downstream pass on, what the guidelines do is provide a framework for assessing both price and the related volume effects that might arise. 
They do make clear, though, that this is a framework and actually it needs to be addressed, passed and needs to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. So, to understand the relationship between the price of the affected product and the downstream price of the end product, the guidelines highlight that both quantitative and qualitative evidence may need to be examined. So, qualitative evidence may take the form of contracts, internal documents, financial reports, etc. And quantitative evidence you know, may be things like sales or pricing data. However, they also acknowledge the need for proportionality. And that's really interesting because the, the very nature of parson, i.e. the need to connect the price of a specific input with the downstream price of the end product or service, establishing how that could have occurred or did occur can be very data intensive and require you know, forensic accountants to conduct detailed assessment of business cost management systems, et cetera. So that need for proportionality is really interesting. Indeed, the guidelines actually do make it clear that the precise quantification of the parcel is not always necessary and that actually the assessment can only be made with the information that's reasonably available. So there's an expectation that often assessments, the assessment of parcel will have to rely on assumptions to be approximate to you know that approximate the level of parcel. Yeah, and I mean, the guidelines indicate that a general understanding of the economic theory and associated effects of parcel may be important for a national court. Uh, for example, when the court is assessing whether the standard of proof has been met in a given case, or when it's considering the relevance of documents requested by way of disclosure. So I think it's clear that economic evidence is going to have an important part to play where parcel is raised. Uh, I mean, as an economist, Iona, how do you see the role of economic theory in these types of cases? Yeah, so the guidelines do they highlight the, the role of the economic theory um, to establish the scope for pass on in the specific case in question. So, for example, it's really important to understand the nature of the cost affected. So variable costs tend to have the most immediate influence on pricing decisions, not always, but generally the nature and the intensity of the competition in the market and the extent to which different firms were affected by the overcharge as well is going to be very important. The sensitivity of downstream customers to price changes again also determines the extent to which any pass on may then have an impact on the amount of volume of units sold or, or the services sold downstream, which will affect that decision. So it's really important. However, the economic theory alone doesn't answer the question of pass on, it just provides a framework for assessing the factual evidence. So you need to understand how the company records and monitors costs which costs indeed they do monitor, the extent to which different costs feed into the pricing strategy, and also how the business sets downstream prices. And as such, it can actually help inform the uh, nature and extent, if you like, of the relevant disclosure that might be required in, in, when it comes to pass on at quite an early stage in the case. But the assessment of the overcharge really then comes from the factual evidence. And depending on the nature of the business, the complexities associated with understanding the relationship between the price of the affected product and the downstream price of the end product, you might actually need a more detailed forensic analysis to be undertaken to really unpick that. As an economist, then we would use the factual and the forensic evidence to develop econometric analysis, which allows us then to disentangle price variations that arise as a result of other cost variations and those that arise actually directly as a result of the overcharge because there may be a number of different moving parts and this is what the econometric analysis attempts to, to, to sort of isolate specifically that overcharge effect. Um, it also obviously allows us to estimate the scale 
of any passing of the overcharge. So it's very important that we go and get there based on that factual and forensic evidence. And for those who've not listened to episode eight in our podcast, which was the last one, uh, there was a great discussion uh, on that about the, the kind of relationship between factual and expert evidence, which uh, people should definitely listen to if they haven't already. But sticking with this one, and we, we should say that the damages directive only applies to claims in England and Wales where both the infringement and the harm occurred after its implementation into English law in March 2017. Given that lead time, most competition damages claims currently rolling through the courts will still be governed by English law principles relating to pass on prior to the damages directive. As we've already talked about a little bit, there hasn't been much guidance from the courts on what those English principles actually are. Uh, but that all changed with the Supreme Court's judgment in Sainsbury's and MasterCard in June 2020. Uh, we act for Visa in the interchange cases. So, Jason, you're very well placed to tell us a bit more about that. Um, it's a case we know well. As you say, Serena, the Supreme Court's judgment provided important clarification of the operation of Parson and the evidential position to successfully invoke this defence as a matter of English law. I could probably talk about this one for a few hours, but with, with a view to keeping the podcast nice and snappy, I think there are a few key points worth drawing out. The first is that, as we've already talked about, competition damages claims are founded in the compensatory principle. While the Supreme Court did not strictly consider it a defence under English law, it did say that in this context, pass on can be invoked by a defendant to show that a claimant has mitigated its loss and therefore is not entitled to recover the entirety of any overcharge. Secondly, it said that court has the power to wield a broad axe to estimate the extent of pass on in the absence of clear evidence. This is an important finding given that it overturned the Court of Appeal below and aligned English law principles with the damages directive. Thirdly, the Supreme Court said that the burden of proof for establishing pass on lies with the party seeking to rely on it. That, of course, will mean that the burden of proof is on defendants using pass on as a defense for direct purchaser claims. However, it said that while the burden of proof for establishing pass on lies with the defendant, once the defendant raises pass on as a defense, there is a heavy evidential burden on the claimants to provide evidence as to how costs are dealt with in their business. If that information is not provided, the court may draw adverse inferences against the claimants. And on that question of how claimants deal with costs in their business, it's probably worth saying that the Supreme Court referred to four principal ways in which a company may respond to an unavoidable increase in its costs. It said that it could accept lower profits, it could reduce its discretionary expenditure, it could reduce its existing costs, or it could charge higher prices to its own customers. The Supreme Court said that if there's evidence that a claimant adopted the third of those, so that is reduction of existing costs, or the fourth, that is charging higher prices to its customers, the compensatory principle mandates the court to take account of their effect. Iona, you've already mentioned this, um, and the charging of higher prices is well established in EU law and reflects the guidelines from the Commission. But this idea of mitigating costs as a form of pass on is quite novel and, as you've said, is not addressed in the guidelines. How, how does it sit with you from an economic perspective? Yeah. Well, as an economist, I would expect companies to minimise their costs. So conceptually, this form of pass on doesn't make any sense. However, we all know that reality does not necessarily reflect the perfect world in which us economists like to operate. So you do need to consider the facts in, of the case in hand. The critical question then really becomes how the company monitors its costs, how costs are allocated internally, the company's approach to cost management, 
and the scope it has to negotiate prices with suppliers at specific points in time. We see that in the Bearings case in June, the CAT rejected the defendant's cost mitigation claim. The judge highlighted the need for a clear factual basis for a cost mitigation claim and the need to be able to draw a clear causal link between the overcharge and the reductions in other costs. And that second point is really key. The need to prove the company specifically engaged in cost reduction negotiations with other suppliers as a direct result of the overcharge. Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how this develops actually as we as we get more and more cases that are considering this issue. I think that when we think about the Supreme Court decision, uh, one of the key points, as Jason mentioned, is that it really aligned the pre-damages directive position with the damages directive position. I think that that had lawyers everywhere breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. Um, but I know from an economics perspective, can you tell us a bit about how you might approach a pass on analysis and in particular, whether there is any difference between the two regimes? Yeah, so there are various techniques that can be adopted. The most appropriate approach will depend on the context and the factual forensic evidence. That said, I mean, comparator approaches are most commonly used in much the same way as they're used for estimating the overcharge. So they allow us to model the relationship between the downstream price and the input cost, accounting for other drivers of the price uh, at the same time. So an alternative to comparing price and cost would be margin analysis. And we've seen this used in some situations. Um, if the claimant's profit margin is unchanged, this might suggest they passed on the overcharge in full. However, again, we, we use the econometric analysis to isolate the impact of the overcharge because there will be a number of different costs and demand factors influencing the price simultaneously that could offset any reduction in the profit caused by the overcharge or indeed mask the fact that the claimant more than passed on the overcharge. So situations where the affected input represents only a very small part of the total cost and or where the affected input represents a general cost to the business as opposed to being tied directly to one specific output product. Those sorts of cases that need to be considered quite carefully uh, when using these sorts of techniques because you need to ensure that actually you're examining the appropriate relationships and you're connecting the appropriate um, inputs and outputs. The challenge the indirect purchasers face when using Parson as a fraud is that they don't have ready access to direct purchasers' cost data, nor do they have a clear understanding of how those costs affect the price of the end product or service that they purchase. So their information set is very asymmetric. It's very much focused on the end price rather than the factors that go into determining what that price is. So disclosure becomes incredibly important for the claimants in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to see actually how the CAT deals with that sort of issue in collective actions, um, because, as you say, we are going to be in a situation where indirect purchasers don't have access to the material that they need to show the foundation for their claim. And in the post damages directive era, uh, that's fine because they have the benefit of presumption. But for the pre-damages directive regime, they, they don't have that and it's not clear yet how they're going to get that. So I'm really interested to, to see what, you know, what, what the CAT does about that um, and I expect that they might get quite creative uh, in the way that they deal with parcel in those sorts of cases. Um, my final question to both of you for today is, you know, where, where do we look to next? What's next on the horizon for guidance on parcel? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this, this will no doubt return in the interchange cases with a quantum trial in the case brought by Asda and others against MasterCard currently scheduled for early 2023. And there was also a recent Court of Appeal hearing in respect of pass-on arguments raised by defendants in the FX litigation, which may provide some further guidance, although the particular points at issue in that appeal are quite focused. Yeah, and I think that that's right, Jason. And I think also, as you mentioned, Serena, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how the CAT approaches the question of pass on in the indirect purchase of class actions that are currently in the court. So Merrick's and the truck cases in particular, raising some potentially quite complex issues, um, especially when you think about the variety of claimants in the truck cases and the way the form that, that sort of pass on can take in those situations. So that will be really interesting to see, and I think it will help under uh, increased understanding about how these uh, analyses are undertaken going forwards. Yeah, thank you both very much. I think there's a lot to look forward to, lots of development still uh, in this area. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of our ninth episode. A huge thank you to Iona and Jason for joining me today and to all of those listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklater's website. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with one of the team, then please do reach out. Our details are on the Linklaters or Alex Partners websites. Mm -hmm.